Jeremiah chapter 46 is our text. If you'd open your Bible or navigate on your tablet or phone. Jeremiah 46, the topic. The Jews refused to believe Jeremiah that they would find no refuge from King Nebuchadnezzar by fleeing to Egypt. The title of our message, Jews of Denial. all right. Father, thank you uh, for our morning together. Uh, We love you, Lord, and we appreciate your word. Even though this is a prophecy uttered hundreds of years ago, Lord, uh, to the nation of Egypt, we see how contemporary it is, not just for Egypt, Lord, but for us as Christians who have been delivered from a spiritual Egypt to walk with you in this world on our way to heaven our heavenly home. Take these words, Lord, and empower them by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Egypt has been prominent in the news. President Hosni Mubarak was forced out of office during a movement that has been called the Arab Spring. Since then, the organization called the Muslim Brotherhood has become the most powerful political force in Egypt. It won control of their parliament. One of its leaders, Mohamed Morsi, became president, and the party dominated the drafting of a constitution that Morsi then pushed to ratification. Some analysts have said that the Arab Spring quickly turned into Sharia winter. That's a reference to the Muslim Brotherhood's desire to implement Sharia law, the moral and religious code of mostly ancient Islam. Among other things, it makes conversion to any other faith, like Christianity, a crime punishable by death in some cases. Coptic Christians in Egypt are already feeling the pain of severe religious persecution. The dominant headline lately is that our government has decided to send huge amounts of aid to these guys. Well, I've got an even bigger headline. In the future, Egypt will reject Islam and they will turn to Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 19, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors and he will send them a savior and a mighty one and he will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord. Lord and perform it. Now, when exactly is that day going to arrive? It is after the future seven-year great tribulation at the second coming of Jesus Christ to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth for 1,000 years. Because that kingdom will last for 1,000 years, we call it the millennial kingdom or the millennium because that's Latin for 1,000 years. In that day, Egyptians will turn to Jesus Christ and be saved and Egypt will be a close ally with Israel. We are confident human history is being directed by God to his predetermined end, the second coming and the kingdom of God. God is constantly working to providentially direct a world of free creatures towards his sovereignly established end. 
That's a huge sentence, by the way. You should underline that and meditate on that. God is constantly working to providentially direct a world of free creatures towards his sovereignly designed, uh, established end. Now, the final chapters of Jeremiah, they contain a series of prophecies dealing with 10 nations surrounding Israel, including Egypt. While we may not be super interested at first in some of these other nations like Moab and Ammon and Edom and Kedar and Hazor or Elam, we should be interested because when we see in history that God directed and disciplined nations just as he said he would, it proves he will accomplish in the future what he has said he will do. We're going to start in Egypt here in chapter 46, and I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God, Egypt, and Israel in history. And number two, God, Egypt, and you in holiness. Let's take a look at Egypt. The first verse of chapter 46 introduces the next 600 verses in the book of Jeremiah. Verse one, the word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations. Regardless the literal history of a particular nation on the earth, we are told in the Bible, and I quote, from one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. God is responsible for allowing nations to rise up and nations to move off of the pages of history. He is providentially leading history to his desired end. Now in particular, we believe God established one nation, the nation of Israel, by which to reveal himself to all the other nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues on the earth. Isaiah 43, 12 said, uh, God saying to Israel, therefore you are my witnesses that I am God. They were the recipients of, they were the custodians of God's written revelation. They were given the law of God and the tabernacle with its system of worship. Through them, God brought his son, their Messiah, who would be the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Their witness did not cease after the first coming of Jesus. Their regathering in the 20th century in direct and miraculous fulfillment of Bible prophecy is a witness to the nearness of Jesus Christ's second coming and it's the focus for the revelation of God's power to save them from international aggression. It's gonna cause God's name to be known among all the nations of the world again and establish Jerusalem as the capital of the millennial kingdom. While at certain moments in history, an Egyptian or an Assyrian or a Babylonian or a Persian or a Greek or a Roman, maybe an Englishman or an Ottoman Turk or even an American might think that their nation is the most prominent one on the earth, its true import and impact is only measured from heaven by its relationship to Israel as we await the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now that's the big picture throughout history. In the sixth century, Egypt and Israel's southern kingdom of Judah were allies trying to overthrow the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. God's message to his people through Jeremiah was to submit to Babylon and not make an alliance with Egypt. He was raising up Babylon as an instrument of his discipline to conquer the Jews and hold them captive for a period of 70 years during which time they would repent and return to the Lord, saving them as a people. 
The Jews rejected Jeremiah and his prophecies and they allied themselves with Egypt anyway. And it seemed to be working when the Chaldean armies of Nebuchadnezzar withdrew from their siege against Jerusalem to deal with an advancing Egyptian army to their rear. In verses 2 through 12 of this chapter, we see that boastful army of Egypt that came at that moment in history humbled by the Babylonians. Beginning in verse 2, this is a prophecy against Egypt. Concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Order the buckler and shield, draw near to battle. Harness the horses, mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets, polish the spears, put on the armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They have speedily fled and did not look back, for fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. The Battle of Carchemish is well known to historians. Jeremiah wrote this part of the chapter after the defeat of Egypt. It wasn't a prophecy, but it's full of the understanding that God was the one who orchestrated Egypt's defeat to suit his purposes regarding the Jews. Verse seven says, who is this coming up like a flood whose waters move like the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood and its waters move like the rivers and he says, I will go up and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. If you went to high school in Egypt, there's a good chance that your football team would be called the flood because this is an image that the, uh, the Egyptian army used. Maybe it's how they rallied their troops before battle. Just like the Nile in Egypt would annually overflow its banks and just take over all of the land in a mighty way. Egypt said, our army is like that. When we go into a battle, we just flood the place. We, we just overflow and destroy the enemy and take whatever we want. This was Egypt's boast. Then in verse nine, we read, come up, O horses, and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the shield and the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour. It shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Now, the Egyptian army that we're talking about here was populated with mercenary soldiers from these mentioned countries. No matter how many bad dudes they hired, this was a battle whose outcome was determined by the Lord. And so these verses are saying, all right, bring it on. You're gonna be defeated. It doesn't matter how powerful you think you are, your weapons of warfare, your mercenary soldiers, they're all going down. Verse 11, go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines. You will not be cured. The nations have heard of your shame and your cry has filled the land for the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. They have both fallen together. Egypt was renowned for its medical prowess and its many medicinal, uh, medicinal uh, I can't pronounce that. How many times a day do you say the word Medicinal. Maybe you say it a lot. I never say it, and I'll never say it again. Uh, her defeat by the Babylonians would leave the Egyptians severely wounded. Her medicines would be useless, as it were. 
After Carchemish, the Chaldean army of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would return and finish its siege against Jerusalem. When the city fell, Jews fled to Egypt in disobedience to God. The next verses speak of Nebuchadnezzar invading Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish in 605 BC. He doesn't invade the land of Egypt until approximately 571 BC. So these next set of verses are prophetic or they were at the time Jeremiah wrote them. He said, look, we know that Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians. You're in Egypt thinking you're safe. He's gonna invade and you're not going to be safe. And so that's what we see beginning in verse 13. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal, proclaim in Noph and Tephanus. Uh, say, stand fast and prepare yourselves for the sword devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? They did not stand because the Lord drove them away. He made many fall. Yes, one fell upon another, and they said, Arise, let us go back to our own people and to the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is a noise. He has passed by the appointed time. As I live, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely as Tabor is among the mountains and as Carmel by the sea, so shall he come. O you daughter dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourself to go into captivity for Noph shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. God wanted the Jews who remained in Judah to stay put. It would be hard to rebuild, that's an understatement, but he would minister to them. They refused and fled to Egypt, so to Egypt God sent the Babylonians and here where it says that everybody went to their native land, the mercenary soldiers after Carchemish, they just quit. They said, we're not gonna fight for Pharaoh anymore. This is a losing battle. That's always the problem with mercenaries. They'll fight hard for you when there's a reason, when they think they can win and have some spoil. When you start to lose, yeah, I'm going home. And so this is a prophecy mostly against Egypt, but for the children of Israel that were there saying, hey, Egypt is not gonna be any safe haven for you because Nebuchadnezzar is coming and he's going to finish his destruction of the Egyptian army. Verse 20, Egypt is a very pretty heifer, but destruction comes. It comes from the north. I don't know if that's really a, the way you want your army described as a pretty heifer. But anyway, uh, also her mercenaries are in her midst like fat bulls, for they are turned back. They have fled away together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity had come upon them, the time of their punishment. Her noise shall go like a serpent. For they shall march with an army and come against her with axes like those who chop wood. They shall cut down her forest, says the Lord, though it cannot be searched because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers. The daughter of Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. Jeremiah used four illustrations to picture Egypt's fall to Babylon. First, he did compare Egypt to a heifer. This is especially striking since one of, Egyptians, one of the Egyptian gods was a bull named Apis. Uh, and, and so God said, yeah, no, you're more like a heifer. Second, he compared the mercenaries in Egypt's ranks of soldiers to fattened calves who had been prepared for their slaughter. They would turn and flee when the day of disaster came. 
Third, Jeremiah compared Egypt to a fleeing serpent that could do little more than hiss at the enemy as she slithered away to avoid the axes of mighty woodcutters who had come to chop down her forest. And fourth and lastly, he compared the size of Babylon's army to a swarm of locusts, which were too numerous to be counted. The point of every one of these illustrations is that Egypt would be put to shame because God had handed her over to the people of the north. Verse 25, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon of No and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him, and I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. This is interesting because he's saying that Egypt would survive as a nation and even thrive. Now, that's a true statement from history. We just talked about Egypt. It's still a prominent nation today. It's no small thing for a nation to survive and thrive, especially for the amount of time that Egypt has. I counted 26 nations which have ceased to exist in the 20th century alone. If you Google that, you'll find at least 26 nations that no longer exist in the same fashion that they once did, and that's just in one century. And so this is an amazing prophecy in and of itself when God says in the sixth century, Egypt will continue as a nation into the last days. Now, we read in Isaiah that Egypt would also be allied with Israel in that day, in the day the Lord returns. And the two verses that close this prophecy against Egypt, we see, are set in that future day. Verse 27, do not fear, O my servant Jacob. Do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest and be at ease. No one shall make him afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. Now, if you read that carefully, it's obviously a prophecy that has never yet been fulfilled. God has never made a complete end of all the nations to which he drove the Jews throughout their history. So this is referring to God's judgment of the nations at the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. As history continues to unfold, we can be certain of one thing. God will not make a complete end of the Jews and he will fulfill his promises to them. You look at Egypt today and you think, Egypt and Israel will never be allies. In fact, what's happened recently in Egypt makes it uh, less of an ally than it's ever been to Israel. Is that not true? I mean, we used to think of Egypt as maybe uh, the, the only Arab sort of ally to Israel in the Middle East, and now they're solidly Muslim, Islamic against Israel as the grip seems to close around that nation. But we know that this is gonna happen because God is providentially working in history to bring it to pass. What Isaiah said has to come to pass. 
God stakes his reputation on it. Now, as exciting as prophecy may be, we want and we always need every passage to speak to us with regard to our own relationship with Jesus Christ right now. And so I wanna take some time and talk about God, Egypt, and you and I in our holiness. Because Egypt can represent many things in our Christian life. Probably the most obvious is our initial deliverance from sin when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. The story of Israel becoming a nation, they were enslaved to Egypt. Uh, The blood of the Passover lambs had to be applied to their doorposts so that the death angel would pass over them and then the Egyptians would allow them to leave. Uh, And so they were delivered that night and set free from slavery in Egypt by the blood of lambs. Then the New Testament comes along and tells us that Jesus Christ is our spiritual Passover, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, meaning that when we come to the cross and allow, spiritually speaking, the blood to be applied to our lives, we walk through that into salvation. And so that's the big picture of Egypt. Egypt is the place of slavery to sin and death from which we are delivered when we trust Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection to save us. If we stay within the context of the sixth century Jews we're talking about and their relationship to Egypt at that time, there's also a few comparisons that we can draw. God had decided to discipline his children in Babylon. They were looking to Egypt for help and fleeing to Egypt for safety. We as Christians can wrongly look to Egypt for help and safety in spiritual ways. For example, we do this intellectually. One of the leading Christian psychologists defends his attempt to integrate the Bible with the psychological theories of godless men by comparing it to the children of Israel when they first were delivered from slavery to Egypt in the Exodus. He points out that the Egyptians gave them many treasures, much wealth for their journey, and it's true. Uh, As the the, uh, Israelites were leaving, God moved on their hearts, the Egyptians, to give them gold and silver and earrings, and uh, they were just happy to be rid of them for the moment because the death angel had come and killed all the firstborn of Egypt, and it was the last of some pretty severe plagues that God had brought, and so they gave them all kinds of material spoil. Now, this psychologist says in the same way, godless psychologists can give their ideas and theories to Christians so that we can truly help people with their spiritual needs, and he calls it spoiling the Egyptians because God's people took their spoils. He says, just like God's ancient people took the spoil out of Egypt, so we want to take all these great ideas from the world. I say, that's stupid. That's the nicest thing I can say about that because listen, the Jews took gold and silver and other material goods. They didn't take the Egyptian gods or magical arts in order to join them to the word of God they were gonna receive at Mount Sinai. If you wanna make a comparison, that's what you'd have to say. You'd have to say they took spells and, and uh, witchcraft and magical arts so that once they got to Mount Sinai and they had the law, they could put all that together and, and really have uh, you know, something going there because they'd have all the wisdom of Egypt and the wisdom of God, and you know, you know, because God's wisdom, it's just not enough by itself. God, God, God might know what he's talking about, about a few things, but how can he know anything about psychology? 
How can God know anything about the soul and the spirit of a human being? After all, you know, he's only God. Even though he says, my word can divide between the soul and the spirit, hey, that's the challenge that he throws down. Freud, you can't do that. Carl Jung can't do that. Abraham Maslow couldn't do that. When I studied psychology at UC Riverside, and we studied all these theories, I raised my hand one day and I said, hey, which of these is the best one? Or I mean, you know, I mean, these guys keep coming ideas about the human psyche and the soul and all this, which one, meaning which one works? And the uh, teacher, my professor, admitted, she said, yeah, none of them really work any better than any others. They're all at about 30% in terms of success ratio. And she said, what really helps people is if they're in a caring community of peoples with a solid family and they just talk out their problems. That helps people about 80% of the time. What? It's true. And so, you know, I know a lot of people, you get out, you see, here we are, we're in there and, and we're thinking, yeah, yeah. Then you get out into the world and people say, oh, you know, you need this and you need that. This guy's so smart and they have this, uh, you know, 15 letters after their name and all of that. This guy who hates God and who's been through multiple divorces and doesn't know anything about life, he's gonna help you. God can't know how to help you psychologically because, because they have you convinced there wasn't any psychology until the 21st century, that there wasn't a science of psychology. No, there was just a living God. Hey, I'll take God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the living word of God any day over anything that the world has to offer. Doesn't mean I'm helped immediately and see, this is the problem. We as Christians, we want immediate answer. We, we, we want a spiritual pill. We want to be able to take a pill and get out of our troubles and start thinking differently and all that. And God says, no, your heart is far too complicated for me to do it that way. I need to lead you along and reveal myself to you uh, piecemeal so that you really get it. But anyway, intellectually, when we go after the spoils of Egypt, all it does is spoil the word of God. Now, we can look to Egypt morally, or I should say immorally. God calls us to be separate from the world in our moral lives. He's established, for example, that marriage as the foundational institution of every nation, it's to be between one man and one woman to last their lifetime on the earth, and that the gift of sex is only to be exercised and enjoyed within that union. That's not what the world around us is saying. Practically anything goes when it comes to marriage and sexuality. How's that working out? Not too good. Now we do a pretty good job of not looking to Egypt when it comes to things like homosexuality and same-sex unions. We've made our stand and the world knows exactly what it is. But we're pretty Egyptian when it comes to committing adultery and getting divorced. Statistically, we're not much better than the unsaved. And if statistics don't lie, 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women describe themselves as addicted to pornography, not tempted by it, addicted to it. And so we need to do a little bit better. If you're here this morning, you have a problem in any of these areas, God just wants you to repent. And he wants to fill you with the power and grace uh, to sustain you in a positive walk with him. On a spiritual level, we can find ourselves being disciplined or discipled and think our help can be found somewhere other than in the Lord. I have to admit, anytime I, find, I realize I'm in a trial, I just wanna get out of it as quickly as possible. 
I know, and, and you know, and I know the scripture. When he has tried me, I'll come forth as gold. I'd be happy to be silver. Uh, you know, what, any lesser metal is fine with me. Brass, you know, something that's, what's not very valuable, you know, anything. Uh, uh, and tin, that's it. Just, I'm, I'm happy being tin uh, for you, Lord. But God says, no, no, you're me. And so how can I get out of this? Where can I borrow the money? What, what, you, what can I do? And we try to weasel our way out spiritually. We look back to something that we learned in Egypt, as it were. I've heard it put this way. After getting his people out of Egypt, God needs to get Egypt out of his people. And that's really true. The children of Israel often wanted to go back to Egypt when things got tough. Each time God was teaching them to be sustained by his grace, they were willing to overlook the fact that they were held as slaves because they... Uh, missed certain delicacies in Egypt. A couple of times they said things like, we're tired of walking with God by grace and learning these miraculous things because we'd like some garlic. There's no garlic out here, just manna. God was providing all kinds of food for them, but there was no garlic to season it with. And they said, let's go back. I'd rather be a slave making bricks and being whipped every day in Egypt for garlic God wants to give me grace out here in the wilderness. It sounds funny, but every time you and I look to Egypt, we're settling for much less than God's best for you. Moses once encouraged the Jews by saying, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. As we close, we should think about what we've been delivered from to serve the risen and coming king. What have you been delivered from? Sin and death. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, you never got involved in horrible things that, you know, like some of us have these testimonies of being delivered mightily, you've still been delivered from them. They're still horrible things that will destroy your life. And if you're a Christian, you can always revel in your deliverance from sin leading to death. You're gonna serve somebody it may as well be the risen Lord, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the picture that Egypt is to us. Uh, so many illustrations, Lord, uh, so many beautiful pictures. None as wonderful as the Passover night when your blood saved your people and created them as a nation out in the wilderness. Uh, Lord, and that blood of Jesus Christ which saved us at the cross Lord, we declare that you're the savior of all men, especially those who believe. And that having believed, Lord, we now uh, are filled with your spirit and are set apart, Lord, to walk with you. And I pray that we would, uh, if we are looking to Egypt, Lord, that we would look away and look back to the cross. Keep our focus on you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing a chorus together. Holy fire Burn away my desire for anything that is not of you, but is of me. I want more of you and less of me. Empty.
they found themselves in the wilderness totally dependent upon God. But when things got tough, they always looked longingly back to Egypt, thinking they had been better off there and wanting to return. Their experience right there at the Red Sea provides a good example. Stopped by the seemingly impassable body of water in front of them, pursued by 600 iron chariots of Egypt, they cried out to Moses and they said, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It's better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now you and I look at that and we think that's ridiculous. If anything, it'd be better to die right there at the Red Sea than to go back and be a slave in Egypt. Better still to wait on the Lord. But that's the illustration God gives us as Christians so often. God has put us in a position where we have to stand still and wait for the salvation of the Lord. We're up against something and something is crushing us and we always think that it's already crushed us, that it, we're already too deep into it, that God has somehow let us down. And, and we think, man, I was, I, this Christian life, it's too hard. I was better off somewhere else. Why did I sign on for this? But Moses, when he answered the children of Israel, he said this. He didn't, he didn't know what God was going to do yet, but he said, don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. See salvation. In other words, God wants to show you something. He has to put you in situations or allow situations where you see it. And, and when you see it, Man, what a great thing. What a wonderful thing. You know what you always end up seeing? You end up seeing that His grace is absolutely sufficient for you, that it's strong enough to sustain you in and through every one of life's circumstances. And you become a testimony of His grace to all who look upon you. We've all learned that, but we have to go on learning it until we go home to be with the Lord. Maybe you're not a Christian. As we said, there was only one way out of Egypt. A lamb had to die and its blood applied to your life. There's only one way to salvation. The lamb of God had to die, Jesus Christ, and rise from the dead so that he could offer you his life in exchange for yours. You can be saved. If you're not a Christian, never given your life to Jesus Christ, you're not sure that if you died tonight or this afternoon, you would go to heaven. Come and talk to Pat or David, maybe you're in the fellowship hall, come on over here, wherever you are, and ask them, what must I do to be saved? And they will tell you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no work you can do, it's all by grace through faith, but you must come and ask for the forgiveness of sins that you might receive him as your savior. God bless you, God keep you. 